Before we jump in, I thought it would be fun to play a little game together. How does that sound? Yeah. All right, yeah. All right, good. Colin likes games. That was very, yay. Uh, all right, are you ready to play a little game together? Okay, cool. I like games, and um, what we're going to do is in a couple seconds, I'm going to play. I'm not going to play. I'm going to have our amazing uh, AV team here. They're going to play a snippet of a song, and the goal is I want you to raise your hand. Don't yell it out. Okay, I just want you to raise your hand if you know the name of the song, the band, or bonus, like super bonus points, the year that it, was, uh, it came out. Now, here's the deal. Um, if this works really well, we're going to try to do it each week. If it's a giant bomb, great. We won't do it again. But uh, we're going we're gonna to focus in today. Uh, I'm going I'm to reach back a little bit, and we're going to look at the 70s, okay? So here are five songs we're going to look at really quick from the 70s, and we're going to, if this works, jump ahead to the 80s next week, okay? So we'll see. Are you ready? Okay, so if you know the name of the song, the band, or the year. All right, here's our first song. Are you kidding me? We've only got like six people here? All right, someone give me the name of the song. Greg Hunter, I saw you there. It was good. Okay, do you know who sings it? Oh, big, big, big bonus points here. And anybody idea the year it was made or released? Oh, 72. Close, Colin. Very good. All right, all right. So you warmed up a little bit here. I figured if you watched Guardians of the Galaxy, you would have known that one. You know, come on. There it is. All right, here's our second one. Oh, this side's really got it. Ah, all right. What do we got? What do we got? Someone over here. Kung Fu Fighting. Kung Fu Fighting. Very good. And do you know who sings it? Oh, big winner. And year? 74. See, you're, so, you're, you're going back and forth, Colin. It's okay. All right, here we go. Here we go. Number three. Okay, there's more of you here that got this one. All right, someone give it to me. Come on, someone give it to me. Play that funky music. White boy is not in the title. Jeez. <laughs> Says our funk bassist and uh, worship leader. Love that. And name of the band? Wild Cherry Year? 76. <laughs> love it, love it. All right, here we go. Number four. Just so you know, Will's in the back playing bass right now. Air bass, and he's playing it really good. Uh, Troy, you've been all over every one of these. Give it to me. It is the knack. What are they singing? My Sharona. My Sharona. Do you have a year? Colin? 79. <laughs> 79. All right, and our last one. This is kind of a, uh, this is a I'm going to throw you a little curveball here. Okay, a little curveball. Let's go. Number five. Oh, some excitement there. Oh, there's a handful of you very excited about this one. 
What's the name of the song? Video Killed the Radio Star. Do you know who sang it? No one does. Oh, Brian, you got it? Not the Bee Gees. You're close. There is a B. The Buggles. That is impressive. That's impressive. Round of applause for that. The Buggles. All right, Colin, give me a year. 79. He got it. Amazing. Uh, a funny thing is, Video Killed the Radio Star is the number, it's the first video ever played on MTV before it tanked and started playing things, not videos. Um, but I thought that worked really well. That was a little fun. Think so? All right, cool. Um, there is one thing that every one of these songs has in common. Are you ready? They are a one-hit wonder. They are a one-hit wonder. As we kick off this new series, I think it's important to ask right up front, how many of us know what a one-hit wonder is? How many of you have heard that phrase before? Okay, a lot of you. A one-hit wonder, it's, it's reference to a song that a band or an artist puts out. It becomes saturated in our culture. We all know the lyrics or the title or the, maybe the band, if that doesn't fade away. But that band or artist never puts out another song that grabs our attention. It never becomes permeated in our culture. They have one hit, that's it, and they're a one-hit wonder. And every decade has tons of one-hit wonders. What's cool, though, is that the Bible itself contains its own set of one-hit wonders. I know you're thinking, like, really? Yes, it has its own set of one-hit wonders. This is a book that's made up of 66 individual books that make up about uh, 1,189 chapters, okay? That's how long the Bible is in its completeness. But if you were to look throughout the Bible, there are five books out of those 66 that are just one chapter. Five books that the people, as they were to putting Scripture together and the canon to figure out, is this, you know, the, the Word of God that we want to rely on that's infallible? There was five books that stood out, and they said, even though it's only a chapter, there's something in here that is so different that it needs to be included, and they are remarkable. They are significant. They are wonderful, okay? Get the pun in there, I gotta. They're amazing, but each week, over the next five weeks, we're gonna look at every one of these books individually because it's one chapter, we can do this together, and we're gonna start, if you, if you are soaping with us in your soap guides, you'll notice that today, it's like, what are we doing? We're starting the book of Obadiah. It's like, why? I loved one of you, one of you as you were looking through the guide, went, why are we reading Obadiah? like in the middle of First Thessalonians. Like, why did you do that? Well, we're going to read it on Sunday and Monday together. Each week, we're going to read the one-chapter book twice so that if you read it in the morning, maybe you'll understand it a little better when we're together. If you happen to journey through it uh, after church or tomorrow morning, you'll have a better understanding of this book and understand what makes this so important. It's just a chapter, but it's so important. So today, we're going to start with the only one-hit wonder in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament, and there's only one one-hit wonder, and it's the prophet Obadiah. It's the prophet Obadiah. It's found in this collection of books we call the Minor Prophets that are near the end of the Old Testament, and these are a collection of books that when someone mentions the name, you really have a very difficult time finding the book. Even if you know the, all the books in order in your head, you're still flipping through trying to find where are these little books, and Obadiah is tucked in there at a single chapter, and they're only minor prophets because of their size, right? They don't have 50 or 60 chapters like some of the larger, or we call the major prophets. Now, 
Obadiah in the Old Testament, its metal, the thing that it's named to claim for, is that it is the shortest book in all of the Old Testament. It has only 21 verses in it, okay, 21 verses. And so let's start really quick with Obadiah 1. And just the first part of it, it says this in Obadiah, this is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. The two things you discover in this verse with me is the first is it's written and revealed to Obadiah. And you know what, if you've been at Crossbridge for a little while, you know one of my favorite things to do is to kind of give some background of the characters that we're reading about or who's writing. You know what we know about Obadiah? Nothing. (laughs) We don't know anything about Obadiah. It was actually one of the most common names in the the area. And so it's like if you read about an Obadiah somewhere else in the scriptures, you don't even know if it's this Obadiah or not. There's nothing that we have that tells us this is who this guy is. There's no context, no region, no family history. All we have is this one-hit wonder. The second thing that we discover in this verse is who this Um, vision is directed at, and it's the land of Edom. Okay, so we're going to use this word Edom a lot today. Say that with me, Edom. Okay, good. This is a a very important nation that now I kind of, I get excited because I want to give you some background to Edom because it will change the way that we read this verse, and uh, I am so grateful for how good God is because I've been reading this for a long time and then even prepping this, it was done early, like Thursday. But after all of the the war that erupted yesterday, it actually brought some, I know this is gonna sound weird, some peace to me, understanding God knows and understands what's been going on here. And so Edom's story is going to start all the way back in Genesis, okay? And in order to get back there, it's the first book of your Bible, it's gonna start with uh, two people named Abraham and Sarah, okay? So Abraham and Sarah, they're married, they have some kids. And when God blesses Abraham, he says, I'm gonna make your descendants so many. Your generation after generation, it's gonna be more than the sand, you know, on the seashore, the stars in the heaven. You're gonna have so many descendants and he really has a single son that he, with Sarah, that this blessing will go through. Well, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca, and they have two kids. Does anybody know what their two kids are named? Jacob and Esau. Esau. These are twins, and these two guys beat the living garbage out of each other and have one of the most dysfunctional, um, unbelievably competitive relationship that any siblings in scripture has. They are stealing things from each other all the time. They're tricking each other all the time. And at one point, uh, there's deception where uh, Jacob tricks Esau into like, you know, this soup, but the soup is red. And so Esau, because he was tricked, was renamed and he has a new name that he goes by. Does anybody know what that name is? It's Edom. It's Edom. So Esau, because Edom simply means red, he said, we're going to call you red so that you remember what you did wrong here. And so he is called Edom. And then Jacob, on the other hand, is also given a new name. Does anybody know what that name is? Israel. And so now we have Israel and we have Edom. And they both would settle in lands right next to each other. This is a, a quick map of this area, and if you look at the blue, this will be where Israel is 
spread out. This was the land that Jacob and his tribes held. And Edom, just to the south, this is the land that Esau and his lineage would come through. And if you look at the land of Edom, what you should know uh, by the Arabian Desert there is, this is the land where, if you know the uh, wonder of the world Petra and all the things that were carved into the rock, it's a very, very rocky, mountainous area. And that was the region that they kind of hung out in. Now, this is what's interesting. They settle in their own lands, but their generations that follow, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids, all the way down the line, carry on that same sibling rivalry. They hate each other. They're related to each other. They know that because of their lineage through Abraham, but they cannot stand each other. And just imagine taking sibling rivalry that you, you cannot stand them and then extend it out over about 1,200 years with no resolution. Sounds great, doesn't it? You know when families fight, and it's like, what are you fighting over? You're like, I don't even know anymore. Yeah, extend that times 100. Now you have a picture of these two nations. But the nation of Israel, the one that was in the blue, they have a pattern, since they've been called to God and by God, of rejecting God. He's given them instructions to follow, and they have chosen not to do that. And ultimately, that nation of Israel gets so frustrated with each other that they divide in a civil war. And then they have a northern section, which is, keeps the name Israel, and they have a bottom section, which then takes the name of Judah. And this all happens around like 920 BCE time. And if you look at the map here, you'll see that this division happens, and in the blue, they kept Israel. Now we have this pink area. This is the kingdom of Judah. And the red area that's on here right now, this is exactly the area where the war that's happening yesterday started is happening right now. That section that's cut out, the, the Philistine city-states, this is still, still a place of major war right here. But then the kingdom of Edom is still on that bottom area. Now, up in that top right side, you'll see this thing called the uh, Assyrian uh, Empire. They're going to come into play in a second because what God does is after these two nations divide and you have Judah and you have Israel, God really wants them to become one again. God wants to call them back. And so he sends men and women who are prophets, which simply means that they hear from God what God wants to say to the people, and he gives them dreams, visions, signs. He sometimes asks them to act out certain things so that the nation will really understand what God wants in that moment. And so they keep coming, they keep doing everything and saying everything that God wants them to say, and the people, specifically up north in Israel, completely reject everything that these prophets have to say. And every time the prophets come, they're saying the same thing. The first thing they say is, repent, or you'll be taken captive. You need to stop doing the things that you're doing. This doesn't honor God. The second thing that the prophets would always say is, a Messiah is going to come, though. Our Savior is going to come. And the third thing that they would say is, when this Messiah comes, the people of God are going to be restored. They're going to be brought together. They're going to be renewed, and they're going to be saved but neither of these countries listened, and after 200 years of prophets coming to try to bring them back to God, the Assyrian Empire that was up on the top side comes down and completely takes out Israel, the blue country that was there, and they, they, they annihilate them. You would think in this moment that Judah, this little nation underneath, would look up and go, we don't want that. Let's turn to God. Let's stop doing the things that God has said not to do. Do you think they do that? Nope. They don't. Not even a little bit. Because a hundred years after Israel's taken over, 
the Babylonians come in and they take out Judah, this southern country, and they just completely pull all the best of the best out. They take them back to, back to Babylonian uh, areas and try to indoctrinate them. But a majority of their focus is on the capital city of Jerusalem. The nation is decimated. And here's why this is important. Edom, their relatives to the south, sat and watched the entire thing happen. They never raised a finger to help. They never did anything. Actually, that's not true. They did do something. When the Babylonians came in and left, the Edomites went in and they began to raid every city that they could find. And they plundered every place that they could, everything that they could have. Actually, the psalmist in Psalm 137, he says this, O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of the Babylonian the, ba the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. You see, they stayed back and they rooted for the Babylonians. They rooted for them to take out Israel. They wanted that nation leveled. And then they went in and they took all their stuff and they, they, they took everything and anything they could, including, would you believe this? The people. They began as refugees came to them they would begin to actually mistreat these refugees. And, and uh, it's, it's Amos, who's the prophet that's right before Obadiah in your Bible. He's also a minor prophet. And this is what he says. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, This is what the Lord says. The people of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sent whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. You see, Edom sat back and rooted for someone else's destruction. And then when it happened, they cheered it on, took all their stuff, and then bought the refugees as slaves. Even though God warned Israel and Judah and said, you need to get your act together or you will be punished. That does not mean that God will stand by and allow others to cheer for that to happen. That's within God's scope and within God's uh, control and decision-making because he is God. We are not. But Obadiah, as one book, is directed directly at Edom saying, you sat back. There are two sections to this book. If you have your Bibles with you, you can kind of, I, I love writing in my Bible to help break it up. But uh, verses 2 to 14 are going to be the first section. Then verses 15 and 16 are almost like a hook that puts the first section together with the second half of the book, which is verses 17 to 21. And, and in the first section of this book, in verses 2 to 14, God speaks right at Edom. And he kind of gives them the root of why they're about to be judged. You ready for this? In, in verses 2 to 4, this is what God says. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride. Because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as the eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. The biggest issue with Edom that God has is that they believed that they were better than other people. 
they were prideful about who they were, that they were safe up in their mountains. And geography, like I said, it really helps when you understand that this is mountain areas, there's crags and there's crevices. And it's really the higher you up in that, the higher you are in that region, the more protected you are. And they took this as they say, they're not, the Babylonians aren't coming after us. Look, we're safe, so we're going to take advantage now. We are better than you. See, we're going to take everything. And God's like, no way. This pride that you've got, just so you understand, Edom, I'm coming for you too. You cannot root for the destruction of my people and think it's going to be okay. Uh, and I love how he says, I'm going to cut you down. I don't love that God says that, but I love that he says, I understand you think you're high and I'm going to bring you back to reality. That you are not as great as you think you are. You can reach up as high as you want. I am higher than that. And, and listen, I get how passages like this make us uncomfortable, don't they? If you read this and you're like, cool, God wants to annihilate people. That's awesome. Uh, you might want to refocus on the teachings of Jesus to understand that this, this is uncomfortable. And it's really okay to say that and go, I don't understand why God would want to do this. We don't like talking about the wrath of God. We'd rather talk about how God loves us. He forgives us and he shows compassion to us. Um, we, we like all the attributes that God, that make us feel good, and, and they are true. They're absolutely true of who God is, but it is important for us to remember that God is holy and God is just, and God is not to be messed with and taken lightly like he's our BFF that we could just like, oh, whatever, no big deal. He is holy and he is just. I, I like the way that uh, Dr. James Emery White puts it. He, he says that God is like fire. The fire that warms can also be the fire that burns. It all depends on where you stand in relation to that fire. Now, I try to keep this in mind when I'm thinking about that term that many people use and that it's divine judgment. When God makes a judgment against a people, you know, anytime that we see God's anger expressed, it makes us uncomfortable. But the truth is sometimes things are so out of control that the fire that warms us needs to become the fire that burns, the fire that wakes up what's going on. And when God's anger needs to surface, it's usually in the context of things have been going wrong for so long that it needs to be done. This needs to be done. I get that it's uncomfortable. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's not my God. My God in the New Testament is a loving God. That's who Jesus is. I need to tell you that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. This is our God. He is eternal. He is forever. He has no beginning and has no end. He did not change when Jesus be, you know, lived on this earth. Jesus was the physical manifestation of what love looked like and how we should be living and what love demonstrated looks like. But that does not change God's anger Actually, you see that expressed in Jesus at times. And at the same time, there's a God who fiercely loves us so much to send his son to die for us. And, and yet he is angry and he gets livid at things like evil and injustice. This is the God that we're invited into relationship to through Jesus. A God where he extends his love, his mercy, his forgiveness when we confess that we're evil, that we have sin, and, and we need forgiveness, and it's the God who loves me also should not be mocked and taken lightly. I fear we do this too often, and, and it's just, ah, it's okay. It's not a big deal. 
I don't want to serve God like that. I want to know that God always has justice on his mind, that things need to be made right, that evil doesn't have a place in this world, and it is wrong. And I want to know that God gets angry when people are being unjustly killed or sold or plundered and murdered. And like, this is wrong, isn't it? And, and I feel powerless. I can't change what's happening right now in the Middle East. I can't do anything. But thank you, God, that you care about justice. And I don't have to determine right and wrong in this situation. But you grieve over this. And you want justice to happen. You want this to be made right. You want reconciliation because you hate evil. And the death of civilians is evil. You will not stand for this. I don't understand his timing. But I understand and bank on his sovereignty. The judgment and justice that God is bringing to Edom in this passage is very long overdue. And if you jump down to verse 10, he tells them exactly why this is coming. This is what he says to Edom. He says, because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof. You refused to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. And if they missed it from this, God then says, you know, here's what happened, but here's what you shouldn't have done. He says, you should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they suffered such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible times of trouble. God is fed up. Justice needs to come. And he's done with the gloating. He's done with the rejoicing over other people's pain, other people's misery. He's done with murder. He's done with violence being celebrated. He's done with stealing. He's done with slavery. He's done with betrayal. This is pretty heavy, isn't it? But verse 15 and 16 shift the book. It says this, that in the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads, just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. Obadiah says here that the shifting of this passage is God is judging Edom. But let me help you understand, this is going to translate not just to this nation. They're almost an illustration of what God is going to do to any nation that begins to speak evil, stand up, or act in prideful ways, specifically here against Israel and his people. Edom's judgment is a warning to all prideful enemy countries. And in verse 15, it, I love that it says, like, God is going to treat them just the way that they've treated the Jews. You plunder and looted? Well... Their nation's going to be uh, looted and plundered, according to verses 5 and 6. They were traitors to the Jews. Therefore, guess what? Their allies are now going to turn against them in verse 7. They were, you know, so violent, so violent. Now, you're going to be cut off completely from the people. You wanted the Jews to be destroyed? Guess what? 
you're now going to be destroyed by Babylon. They're going to come after you next. Edom, you will reap what you sow. God will not, please hear me on this, this is uncomfortable to say, but I'm going to say it. God will not put up with people who root for others' destruction. God will not put up with us rooting for anybody's destruction. He can make these decisions. He is God imperfect. We are not. And remember what the prophets did, though. They announced repent and get right. But they also always gave a sense of hope. A Messiah is coming, and a restored nation will happen, and this is exactly how Obadiah turns in the last section of verses 17 to 21. It's all about the restoration of God's kingdom. This is all about this new Jerusalem, and it's really cool if you go and you read the minor prophet Joel and you read Amos both. It's two minor prophets. They're not one-hit wonders. They say something very similar to what we're about to read. God was trying to communicate something to the people, and it's that God's going to restore David's line. Right? He's going to save and restore Jerusalem. And this kingdom, oh, I love this. Oh, this is so cool. This kingdom that God is establishing isn't just for Israel. He says it's going to be for all nations. And in Amos and in Joel, they mention Edom as one of the nations that's going to be part of this kingdom. God is going to make things right and be just about it. But he's not saying, I'm cutting you off completely. He's saying, you will be part of this kingdom in the end. You and I are beneficiaries of this promise that we're going to read. And in, in verse 17, it says, But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and eat them a fiery dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame, roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Uh, sometimes when you read this, it's like no survivors. Then is God not saying it's true if there are survivors? Um, this is part of prophecy and war literature. It's not an annihilation. It's very simply like the uh, Phillies killed the Braves last night, didn't they? Did they really kill them? No. And so they're, they're still surviving, but they, got, they did some damage. Does that make sense? Okay, it's important to keep that in mind. He says, then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the lands of Gilead. And the exiles of Jerusalem will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle in the, in the, the towns of the Negev. And those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over all the mountains of Edom. And the Lord himself will be king. This is the ending of Obadiah. And what I find so amazing is I get this picture that when God, his people and creation begin to work in union together, that we begin to see justice breaking out. We begin to see peace breaking out, wholeness breaking out, love breaking out. But in order for those things to break out, what's holding them down has to be destroyed. When there is injustice, God will not have it. It needs to be destroyed. And the biggest hope of all is found at the end of verse 21, and the Lord himself will be king. And, and here's what that means, and here's why I love that, is it's because evil does not win. Evil does not win. Amen. Evil won't have the last word. God will have the last word. 
And, and so wherever you are in your life right now that you feel like might have the last word that is overwhelming to you, whether it's, it's relationships that you're in and you're not sure what to do with or financial struggles, they will not have the last word in your life. God will have the last word. Divorces that have happened and losing loved ones and separations, they will not be the last words of your life. God will have the last word because he sits on his throne. Cancer and sickness will not have the last word. Loneliness, isolation will not have the last word. Depression will not have the last word. Not even death gets the last word. Because our king sits on a throne and he says, I get the last word. I get the last word and he is for us, not against us. God on his throne is where we find hope. That he knows what's going on. And as we, as we close this book, I'll tell you the two biggest questions that I have wrestled with that I will invite you into my wrestling match because I love to pastor like that. The first question that I've had to ask as I've looked at this is what legacy am I leaving? And I know that's a very odd question to ask, but the original feud that began with Jacob and Esau, the consequences of that were so far-reaching generations down the line. And so I have to ask you, as I've asked myself, how are things going with my own family? How do I interact with my wife, my kids, my, my brothers, my sister-in-laws, my parents, my grandparents? If, if everyone in my family were to relate to each other like I relate, is this what I want for them? Is this what I want to pass down and for them to know? Because the traits that we carry pass down. We've learned to operate by watching our parents and our families. What type of legacy are you leaving? How about as a church? As we begin to grow as a church, we're passing our legacy of how we interact with each other and love each other to the next generation. Are they seeing things that are healthy? Do, do, are we demonstrating life lived together in such a way that they're like, I want that? I will tell you, Crossbridge, I'm so proud of you because I think we are on the right path of doing this. God's love has been expressed in us together where I have been in numerous situations where people who are far from Jesus and do not know him have been intrigued by you and your love for each other, your support for each other, your invitation to join them where they are. And I'm like, oh, I love this place. Lord, help us leave a legacy that's worth following to the generations that follow us. Amen. We got to be intentional about that. Obadiah calls us to take an inventory. How are the relationships in your life? Is this the legacy you want to leave? The second question I've been left thinking about is, how do I view and treat my enemies? This has been a little more acute after yesterday, but all of our Edoms might look a little bit different, okay? Your Edom is an enemy. And anytime you, you feel like, I don't have enemies, if you ever use the word those people and those follows any sort of category, it's usually a way of indicating this is an enemy to us. It's those, and you pick your political party. It's those, you could even pick your denomination, and we shame that way. It's those, and it's a belief system, or uh, an education, or a color, or a gender, and it's those. These are people we treat as enemies, as less than us. That anytime we can use the word those, that is rooted in pride. Is there a person's name that when it's said, you start to get angry just when their name is said? You start to get agitated over that? Your blood pressure starts to go up. You're like, what's happening? They said that name. We've got looking at Edom all wrong, in my opinion. 
You know, we, Edom is not an enemy that we should be avoiding. Edom is not an enemy that we should be trying to shame and push aside. Edom is people that God has called us to be praying for, people to be loving, people to be in relationship with, that we can't shake our fists and dismiss them. These are the enemies that with God's grace, we're called to help, we're called to love, we're called to visit, we're called to embrace and serve. Our King Jesus has given us a new command when it comes to our Edoms. You know what that command is? You have heard the law that says, love your enemy or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And here's our new law that Jesus gives. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God promises to return to Edom what they've been dishing out. That's not for us to do. It's time to take judgment, destruction, and wishing against people off of our plates. We can't handle that pressure. We're not smart enough, wise enough, or discerning enough. We're just not. We're supposed to live out the new law of Jesus, which says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Pride was Edom's downfall, and I think it's ours too. Instead of Jesus' death and resurrection being this, this enemies get the victory, the enemies do not. Because he was raised from the dead on the third day and invited anyone who wants to follow him, including his enemies. He said, I will invite you to be part of the kingdom of heaven. You're invited. When's the last time we invited our enemies to join us? Obadiah makes me have to wonder, how do I treat and how do I view my enemies? Because Jesus has called me to something different. It's a one-chapter book. Easy to skip, isn't it? Over the next two days, I pray that the Lord would give you great insight as you read it, remind you to love well, and that we would take on an attitude like Jesus who at the Last Supper, and this is the reason we celebrate communion every week, we're reminded that we are surrounding a table with people who are different than us. Someone that's gonna think differently than you, speak differently than you, uh, vote differently than you, read scripture differently than you. Those are all great, but the truth is, Christ has called us all together, amen? And so if we can't be the community where we begin to love and leave a legacy like that, where we will pray for blessings over our enemies and not curses, boy, that's so hard. Maybe the first step in that is even just being able to say their name in prayer without cursing them. Following Jesus is worth it. And he sat at the Last Supper with his disciples, and they all ditched him. And yet he invited everyone back, because that's what love looks like. I don't know if you've ditched Jesus recently. I know that I've wandered. And I'm so grateful he calls me back every day. This is what communion is about. Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts for communion today? Jesus, I make no mistake understanding that your teachings are just hard. I do not always like to love my enemies. I don't even get how to do that. I don't, I, I struggle with praying for people who persecute me. I'm learning, but I am grateful that you have called me to follow your teachings, but you've demonstrated what that looks like. So even this morning, as we begin to, to surround the communion table together, we remember that, that each cracker that is there represents your body, that it is your body that has been broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins, where we have lacked to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. 
that we've treated people like Edom and said, be separate, I'm better than you. And that, that, that cup is your blood that has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins for all of us. It is the cup of redemption that you're bringing things together. Oh, Jesus, bring us together. Allow us to love so differently so that people would say, whatever that is, I want that. And we would say, that's what grace looks like. And I freely give because I freely receive. Lord, would you prepare the table that we eat at and even in the presence of our enemies so that we would see your kingdom come. In Jesus' name. If you have dedicated your life to Christ and his teachings, I would encourage you to grab your bread, grab your, uh, dip it into the cup or grab a prepackaged and come back together and we will eat and receive the body and blood of Christ together. When he was with his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. Let's eat together, embracing Jesus together. And then he held up the cup of redemption. He said, every time you gather, drink this in remembrance of me. Remember you need this all together. Never forget my sacrifice for you. Let us drink together. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, that's who he is. And you must love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. May you go repeating them again and again to your children. Would you talk about them at home, when you are on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up? Let them be in your hands and, and have them in your minds as a reminder 
Let them be around your house and on your gates as you enter and go. May we go being the blessing of Jesus. Go in his grace and peace this week. In Jesus' name, amen.